Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I'm Jonathan Wingfield, and welcome to Past, Present and Future. The podcast series brought to you by System Magazine, in which we quiz guests from fashion or the arts about where they're from, where they're at, and where all of us might be heading. This episode's guest is the Dutch architect, urbanist, theorist, and all-round big thinker, Rem Koolhaas. Rem and his architecture firm, OMA, conjure up the kind of buildings that are as spectacular as they are challenging, mixing intense research and investigation with a taste for avant-garde design. In Asia, he's delivered projects such as CCTV, the monumental headquarters of China's state broadcasting company in Beijing. And in America, this includes Seattle's intricate multi-layered central library. And then there's the more than 20-year collaboration with Prada, working continuously on the brand's shops, set design, and its art foundation in Milan. But perhaps more than any single building, Rem is best known for being a kind of one-man think tank, traveling the world and bringing his experiences and encounters into new buildings, new books, new exhibitions, and above all, new ideas. So Rem, thanks for joining us on Past, Present and Future. Okay, okay. Well, let's go right back to your past. I mean, you were born in Rotterdam, right? You were born in, in, in the latter part of, of the Second World War. Rotterdam, a city that had been sort of desecrated, been flattened during the, during the bombing in the war. Tell us about some of your early memories of living in the city and, and of kind of growing up in a city that was defined by its struggle with its reconstruction. Yeah, I, I lived both in, first in Rotterdam and then in Amsterdam in my youth. Both in Amsterdam and Rotterdam, there was still enormous amount of evidence of the war. Actually, that was uh, kind of really for kids a form of excitement, you know, because you could uh, play in the ruins, you could discover like grenades in the ruins, bullets in the ruins. And what was interesting in that period is that anyone's parents were typically enormously happy and relieved that the war was over and uh, to a considerable extent uh, partying. So that also meant that for kids, there was a kind of huge freedom to play and to relative independence at a kind of very young age. Looking out of your window as a kid, describe the scene. We lived on the kind of edge of the crater. So our street was just intact. But if you took 10 steps, you would really uh, enter an area of devastation. It was bombed in the 40s. This was five years later. And there were interesting attempts to kind of reconstruct, and the city was not really reconstructed, but it was reconstructed in wood and canvas and neon. In a kind of weird way, it looked like Hollywood, like like original Hollywood with single-story facades, uh, billboards and signs. And then kind of over time, it became more substantial. And when we moved to, to Amsterdam, Amsterdam was more or less intact, but in it there were drastic uh, kind of ruins uh, still around. And and then we moved uh, almost, you know, as a kind of sequence uh, to Indonesia. What, what what was it that prompted the move to, to Indonesia? You know that after the war, the Indonesians had declared independence after the Japanese surrendered, but the Dutch made a war to uh, reconquer their former colonies. And my father was a journalist at the time. He, he was working for a kind of leftist paper. And so basically he took the Indonesian side and that meant that after Indonesia had become independent, he was invited by the Indonesians to the recently independent country. 
for four years. And of course, Indonesia was fantastically exotic and it consisted on one hand of a kind of colonial infrastructure, housing and, and buildings from the 18th century, 19th century, quite beautiful neoclassical kind of environments, but also jungle and also kampong, which is kind of Indonesian village in, in the middle of the city. And, and so a pretty drastic uh, coexistence of Western and Asian environments yeah, with a very strong Chinese presence at the time. So it was also, in a way, my first confrontation with China and, and Chinese architecture. Looking back on that experience of living somewhere so kind of, as you say, exotic, based on you know your earliest years, what do you think that did in terms of influencing your understanding of things like national identity, of globalization, of travel? I think it was absolutely the most critical experience and also the most uh, kind of relevant experience because we came after independence, so you could sense that there was a kind of almost feverish working out who they were. And at the time, there were not that many Dutch people. So I went to an Indonesian school and an Indonesian Boy Scouts. So I had a kind of very early experience of being an absolute minority. I think that I was with my brother, the only white boy among maybe 40 or 60 Boy Scouts. And so I think that was also a very crucial experience of, you know, what it means to... Yeah, you know, both to be alone, but but also to to be really genuinely part of a different culture, of a new culture. I mean, when when you were younger, yes. when you, uh, would you say that you were aware of sort of the spaces around you? Were there buildings that left impressions on you? We always lived in kind of interesting environments. Uh, first of all, that kind of ruined environment uh, where we lived actually in kind of modern architecture. Then we lived with a different family in a neoclassical building, which. At the kind of balcony with uh, a naked uh, woman and a naked man. And then we moved to Indonesia where we were living in the stables of a 17th century mansion. So we always lived in quite strong uh, architectural environments and, and that alerted me to the issue of difference. Uh, plus my grandfather was also an architect, so I think that I lived in a family where, where that was natural to consider it. I mean, building blocks and Lego and all those things that kids do. Were you into those things more than as much as anyone else? Or I, I think that the kind of building blocks and Lego now sounds like totally something you would do at home. My greatest memories, you know, almost until the age of 14, is that I was never home. <laughs> And that all my experiences were either in the open air outside or in uh, radically different conditions. My parents traveled a lot inside Indonesia and kind of at some point they would leave us, for instance, when we were, I think, nine in a village in Bali with a family and told us, you know, uh, we come back in three weeks, just experience it or just enjoy it. So we would go every day to the temple. We would be part of a industry that made small Balinese dolls. So I don't remember ever actually having the time to build blocks. Life sounds like an adventure for the young Rem. A total adventure, yeah. And then I came back in Netherlands at 12. And then suddenly for the first time, I was in a kind of structured, ordered, normal uh, environment. And, and uh, I found it very hard to uh, digest. 
at school when you were a teenager, would you say, were you like a grade A student? Were you rebellious? Were you a slacker? I, I, basically, I was 12 in 56. And so that was definitely the beginning of the 60s. The notion of being A grade was simply not on the agenda. I became incredibly interested in uh, kind of reading and literature. I read all the Russian literature first, then French, then German, then American. Then I discovered movies, went maybe four or five times a day to different cinemas, Italian films mostly, and French films. So it was kind of really more a kind of intellectual, basically artistic education. And we lived in Amsterdam at the moment, where the Stedelijk Museum was a kind of very important cultural entity, kind of really uh, avant-garde. Incredible exhibitions of Yves Klein, Tang Li, uh, the entire European and American avant-garde. So it was essentially, you know, working on my sensibility. You said your father was a journalist. Would you say you grew up in a family and in a household where arts and the culture were sort of considered to be valuable? Oh, absolutely, yeah. They, they lived also accordingly, yeah. Yeah, my father was also a kind of writer and my mother was a set designer, uh, but their taste was relatively uh, traditional. And so, you know, I used the time when I came back in Holland to uh, separate myself from that traditional taste and, and to become a modernist yeah. <laughs> in retrospect. Yeah. Would you say that you were, a, were you a particularly ambitious young man? Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that I was ambitious in the sense that I had uh, very strong fantasies of what I could achieve. Yeah? For instance, at some point when I was 17, I thought I might become a kind of fashion designer and I thought I could also become a filmmaker, but I also had a fantasy of being an actor. But ambition was more a way of, of testing the essences of what you could be. Yeah? So when you were 17, that was in the 60s, right? So who would you have been interested in in fashion at the time? Is it sort of Pierre Cardin, Pacquiao? Yeah, Pierre Pacquiao. Cardin, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and of course, Pierre Cardin, you know, at the time created incredible space suit uh, fashion. But also my mother was, you know, made her own clothes. I think that through her, I also would have looked at uh, Dior or, you know, basically all the heroes. So you started your professional life as a, as a journalist, right? And you also went on to write film scripts and so forth. Yeah. And I'm just curious to know what lessons that you took from journalism and from storytelling in general and brought that into architecture. I first became a journalist in 64. I worked for a weekly that was, in my eyes, extremely exciting because a number of artists slash kind of writers slash uh, kind of filmmakers who were at that point beginning to uh, color the Dutch cultural uh, kind of scene and, and actually introducing 60s sensibility in, uh, in the Netherlands, all worked for that paper. And one of them was my boss, His name is Armando, and... He wrote concrete poetry, was part of the Zero group. And as a journalist kind of told all the people working for him that they needed to write as if they had just uh, kind of arrived from Mars and were kind of recording what they saw with great astonishment and lucidity. You know, when I was 18, that was a kind of incredibly important lesson, which I've never been able to completely 
transcend, I think. Tell me about writing film scripts. It seems so far removed from architecture. You know, what is extremely difficult to, uh, to imagine now is that you could become a journalist without going to journalism school and in the same way you could be a filmmaker without uh, going to film school. There was an incredible permeability and also a lack of a priori professionalism. Yeah? You didn't have to be something to do something. So we all moved between different uh, fields. I was writing scripts for friends who were uh, actually professional filmmakers. I don't want to exaggerate what I did, but I basically wrote a film script with a friend for a film that was called The White Slave, premiered in 1968, uh, the most expensive film ever made in the Netherlands at the time. It was about a good German, and that alone made it extremely controversial in Holland, and it was a kind of total commercial failure, but it also became a myth. With that same friend, uh, and I had left Holland in 68 to study architecture in London. We met in London, I think somewhere in 1971. Uh, Ross Meyer, the American kind of filmmaker, uh, wrote a single script for him called Hollywood Tower, which he never kind of did, but that is the extent to, to which I wrote film scripts. It was very swinging 60s, 1968, yeah. in London, Russ Meyer. Exactly. I was extremely kind of lucky uh, in being part of almost every crucial situation in, in these years. It shows a certain alertness, but it also was, uh, to a large extent, uh, luck. Right place, right time. Yeah. The reason I really became an architect was that at some point I went with a friend who was an architect to Russia, I think it was in 66, when Russia was still not particularly accessible. We were very lucky this friend was doing research on constructivism and basically on Soviet art of the 20s and 30s. So we met physically, you know, a number of survivors of that uh, period or their widows. And I saw that uh, in the 20s, Russian architects were kind of really not about uh, shape, or about kind of form, but were simply kind of proposing alternative ways to live. And there was one kind of project that made a particularly big impression. It was a proposal to abandon cities and to build linear chains of single rooms on stilts, each room with a small external staircase, which would venture into countryside, through forests, uh, kind of through landscapes, and in each room would live a single person, dismantling the city, but also dismantling the family. And, and every half kilometer, there would be a communal school, communal hospital, communal kitchen. And basically, you know, if people wanted to stay together, they would form a chain of those rooms. And if they wanted to be separate or alone, they would be isolated. And simply that was such a graphic demonstration that architecture could be involved with that kind of imagination and, and how people should live and in what kind of conditions and what the possibilities of life in the future would be. That, that became the trigger for me. Looking back now, would you say there was a naivety to, to and a sort of you know, utopian idealism of, of going into architecture now? I, I would still... uh, kind of put it differently. I think that I used to be very sceptical about architecture. You know, I used to be thinking that it was kind of really regressive discipline 
with little affinity with the modern world and constantly kind of missing the point of uh, technical developments. But I've recently become kind of much more uh, interested in it uh, because it also depends on what you call naivety uh, and which I would call uh, kind of maybe idealism. Because I think that, you know, without that kind of naivety, I think it becomes uh, kind of very uh, banal and flat. It's a naivety that you really have to protect and incorporate. Do you still feel as ambitious today? I I hope that I've corrected the word ambitious and replaced it with uh, imagination uh, or fantasy. And yes, I still have those kind of fantasies and and many of those uh, fantasies are also about being something totally different or doing something totally different. What's your latest fantasy? Well, I mean, uh, we have become kind of very close in terms of understanding biology, uh, what is going on in biology. So uh, it really gave me a kind of strong sense that, you know, if I had known what I know now about biology, that I might have become a biologist. But uh, I'm still um, making uh, serious efforts to to open up an agenda in that field. Yeah? So that's that's only one example. Let's talk a little bit now about the present. We're recording this first week in February yeah. 2021. I, I've always considered you someone that for the past few decades, you've regularly traveled between multiple countries, multiple continents in any given single week, certainly month. Yeah. So how, how has this sort of uh, forced immobility of the pandemic affected you, you know, sort of psychologically, but also how it's affected your work? It hasn't uh, massively affected the work in the sense that most of the things we were involved in are uh, still going on. But also I've been quite adamant that to force uh, creative insights and creative kind of breakthroughs, this kind of work through Zoom uh, simply isn't enough. Uh, so we have been able to to create, you know, when it was necessary, kind of moments of togetherness, sometimes uh, in the open air. We still rely on the kind of things that uh, trigger insight, which typically are, for me, collective moments. So from time to time, we I have continued to travel, but it's also been extremely interesting, of course, because I've begun to really have a totally different relationship with my home, with the city of Amsterdam and with the Netherlands. I think that many people have that um, experience of kind of somehow taking their own environment a lot more seriously which has its good sides and its uh, claustrophobic sides. And a great thing about enforced immobility is also that there is no jet lag. <laughs> and, and so in that sense, uh, it, it's creating a kind of a physical uh, serenity. I was almost um, feeling envious when uh, you said jet lag of the kind of the state of jet lag. Yeah. The pandemic, it seems, it strikes me that it's brought about a sort of an accelerated or, or intensified feelings of nostalgia for many people and certain things. What are you feeling nostalgic for? Uh, already in the last uh, kind of uh, five years, I'm kind of very nostalgic for one thing that I tried to articulate you know, in the Venice Biennale, where I said that the current culture has replaced the motto of the French Revolution, Egalité, Fraternité, with comfort, security and sustainability. 
and basically a complete aversion of risk. And so uh, already for uh, five years, I'm deeply nostalgic for a kind of period where risk-taking was uh, more kind of respected and also more considered as a uh, crucial component of civilization. I think that the aversion of risk has been clearly multiplied through the pandemic. Uh, if you hear the kind of rhetoric, risk now seems almost a kind of obscenity. Nostalgia is kind of basically reinforced by the current moment. Would you say that you're kind of defined by by risk and risk taking? Do you think that, would you say that you take risks outside of your professional life as well? Yeah, I mean, there is a risk taking and there's kind of irresponsibility. And so it doesn't mean that I kind of jump out of planes, but it's more that uh, I sometimes have an intuition that certain fields are becoming important or uh, that I need to go to kind of certain places or that I need to understand the sort of kind of phenomena. And then in most cases, you know, I take at least the risk of of uh, seeming ridiculous in terms of adopting a new interest or exploring a new interest. Now, you've recently collaborated with American Express and Turian Mm. Um, on a card that features an unrealized project of yours. Yeah. And so could you tell me a bit about the, the original project and also its sort of renewed significance in the context of American Express and Turian? When American Express said they wanted to work on a, a credit card, I thought it was extremely exciting, partly also because one of the pandemic effects has been you know, a total proliferation and ubiquity of the credit card. Uh, it's become a kind of more important uh, kind of device. And originally we were kind of working on versions of and uh, elaborations of the American Express credit card, because I think the American Express identity, you know, with that uh, vaguely Roman centurion on the cover is, is deeply exciting and uh, semiotically irresistible. <laughs> but they were extremely interested that it should be about us. We then kind of settled on uh, this particular project. Tell me about the project. What, what was it originally planned to be? That project is a kind of project which was called Bompius. Uh, Bompius is a literally translated uh, small trees or little trees. And it was one of the kind of few movie moments in my life. I was invited by a councillor of Rotterdam uh, who was sitting in front of the map of his whole city who basically uh, asked me with a kind of grandiose intonation, where do you want to build? Wow. And so he gave me the kind of choice where, where to build. And there was a kind of very interesting site on the river uh, near a bridge on a kind of very narrow side that on one side was defined by a bridge, on the second side by the water, on the third side by the highway, and on the fourth side by a building. So it was kind of constrained, but on every side a different condition. I basically, you know, uh, said that side, and then we, we developed, and that for me was a kind of transition really between being a theoretical architect and trying to become a kind of real architect for, with a real building in a kind of real city. And the elements on the card are derived from a kind of single drawing we did that explained every component of the project, the program, the location, the experience, everything kind of condensed in a single drawing. 
because we needed that to convince politicians. So, I mean, it, so it sort of represents this, this quite pivotal moment in your career, as you said, where you wanted to go from being a theoretical to a sort of more practicing and, and you know, physical architect. And yet the project remained unrealized which is such a common thing in the field of architecture. Yeah. Can you remember how, how that felt at the time, given that you've talked about being this, this sort of, you know, with the idea of the fantasies uh, and, the, and the idealism, uh, and, and now you had a chance to actually, you know, physically construct something? Uh, well, yes, deeply crushing, deeply uh, annoying, but also an incentive to go on and, and also an incentive to find different ways to establish your career in other forms. At that time, I kind of realized that basically you could also describe uh, architecture or even establish an architecture through words. Books are obviously a crucial form that we found for that other way of being an architect or building architecture. And from that moment onwards, you know, an architecture project, of course, it would be a kind of crucial and wonderful and essential and you know we worked very hard to actually make them happen in the real world but if they didn't happen we at least demanded of each project that it also made a kind of statement that was relevant uh, to to the discipline of architecture for instance in almost every project i kind of really try to explore an issue that uh, has an importance sort of beyond uh, the individual project uh, itself. This time last year, you were almost to the day you were in New York, you were opening the exhibition at the Guggenheim uh, Countryside, The Future. Now, obviously, on one level, the theme feels almost eerily prescient, given the ways that we've seen cities subsequently become these sort of empty and mm. somewhat dystopian vessels, and how the countryside has also felt so profoundly appealing to many, many city dwellers. Tell me about the original thinking behind the exhibition and how has the um, pandemic sort of altered or perhaps intensified its meaning? The original uh, trigger behind the exhibition was two things. I was very often on holiday in Switzerland, a village. Initially, that village seemed kind of relatively stable. There was a lot of farming, there were cows, there were blah, blah, blah. But at some point, 15 years ago, there was a very radical and rapid uh, transformation. The original people disappeared, farms disappeared, cows disappeared, and basically boutiques came in. And you saw a kind of acceleration of change, much faster than I had ever witnessed it in a city. So that was one. And there was another kind of thing that the UN uh, noticed in, uh, I think, 2007, that half of mankind lived in cities and also kind of predicted that in 30 years, that percentage could be 70%. Only 30% of mankind was remaining in the countryside. It meant that the largest part of the world would undergo a halving of its total population, uh, really a total revolution. You know, there was also an, a kind of really, I have to say, pretty thoughtless commitment and focus of the architectural profession on city. There were biennales about the kind of city. There was endless uh, conferences about the city. The city became the kind of almost inevitable subject. Partly out of a simple kind of, kind of contrariness, I then said, okay, but, you know, if the city is so important, what what happens in the countryside and what is going on? And... And then we looked for maybe about 15 sites in the world where 
in each case, something unique was happening in the countryside. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> pandemic happened. And, and yes, of course, it, it in the beginning, people thought it was uh, highly eccentric to look at the countryside. And then suddenly the countryside became also because people couldn't travel. You know, the countryside was the only uh, foreign place they could go to. And yes, that is good, but it is, of course, also maybe a kind of first step in gentrification. So um, I think that the countryside project in itself maybe benefits to some extent in slightly more credibility, but it's definitely not about getting a second house in the countryside. Okay, let's let's now talk about the the, you know, the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's always a tricky topic to talk about in such sort of simplistic terms. But um, what would you like to see change in architecture over the forthcoming decade? Okay, uh, basically uh, because I'm I'm not good at it, uh, <laughs> I wrote some kind of answers. Why do you think you're not good at that? Uh, I think I'm so journalistically kind of stuck in the in the current uh, kind of moment. And of course, I think about the kind of future, definitely. But predicting the future uh, makes me nervous. Because as an architect, you're always planning ahead. So I would say, yes, over the next five years, I am comfortable with it. But for instance, absolutely no idea whether that shift to the city is necessary or whether a shift back to the country could be imminent or that the world could be very unequal where a certain part of the world are focusing on cities, other parts maintain the countryside and maybe third parts actually would go back to the countryside. So I have a very strong expectation that the future will be much less unilateral than we thought. I, I think that maybe in 91, uh, there was this kind of moment where it seemed to be that history was over and that the world uh, would all become kind of single, large, integrated economy and a single, large, uh, kind of liberal political system. But it is very, very obvious that that is not going to happen and that therefore confident predictions for the entire world are completely untenable now. You mentioned the sort of the pressure and the inconvenience of having to predict future conditions and situations, behavioural patterns. How does it feel to look back and acknowledge that you've got certain predictions wrong? Are you just happy to accept that that's the reality of of, of the position that one is put in? Yeah, of course. No, to- totally. And and I have used maybe this uh, kind of time uh, slightly less hectic in terms of traveling uh, to, to really make an, inf- an inventory of uh, kind of moments, you know, where you were clearly wrong and where you were clearly, clearly right. And I'm not going to share the, the conclusions. <laughs> anyway, you asked uh, what, what I hope. What you would like to see change uh, architecture in the future? I would say kind of fewer icons. That is for me the kind of main kind of issue. It has been the issue for a very long time. I- icon is a very important concept, but it's been so debased uh, currently that I would even propose to really uh, abandon the word uh, for a long time. In, archite- in architecture? Or, uh, in, or, general, or in general, in general, yeah. <laughs> Your next question, should architecture's greatest current concern be impact on the environment? I think that we were kind of working on a competition where the, there was kind of really radical demands on uh, changing priorities. 
And then you kind of realize that it will be the greatest concern impact on the environment, but it means you won't have a kind of neat hierarchy between kind of beauty, practicality and sustainability. I, I think it, it really requires a complete rethinking of architecture and also a complete reimagination of the kind of knowledge that is necessary to produce architecture. You know, because to actually really think about uh, sustainability, some kind of slogan like commitment to sustainability or to constructing in wood or to uh, a kind of recycle is, is not enough. And you have to understand in each of these categories, partly through the contribution of uh, different forms of knowledge and, and, and really then transform the architecture. So I think it will be not so much a priority, but it will be an enabler of a, a new architecture. Do you, do you feel a sense of responsibility to initiate the shift in, in, in those kind of thinking? I think we have we certainly haven't initiated it. We have thought about it, uh, but this is maybe one thing to be said in favor of architecture and, and also of the 60s. In the 60s, everything you know now was known in terms of, you know, the limits to growth, the uh, effect of global warming, how we needed to change the kind of economy. All of that was known and basically taught in kind of 60s school. Any architect trained in my generation, and I guess also one or two generations after, is, you know, still vaguely committed to all of that. But I think it's only now that there is the clients and the political awareness and, and increasingly the obligation to change. And, and that triggers then the moment that, you know, the sensibility we had can encounter the obligation to uh, change. What do you think travel and tourism will look like in the next few years? And in what ways will this affect architecture? That, that is why I'm getting nervous, because the obvious thing would be to say less mass travel and kind of more individual travel, less tourism as, as consumption, but maybe more tourism as uh, traveling. But those are also obviously kind of wishful think, thinking. And I always find it difficult to uh, separate prediction from wishful thinking. But uh, clearly that needs to happen. I love the fact that you're working on post-icon icons. What would a post-icon icon look like and how would we define it? Well, I think everyone is excited when they see something which represents something that is highly needed. I don't know whether you know, in the kind of 50s here, there was a kind of incredible crisis uh, because uh, part of the country was inundated and uh, many people died because we had neglected the dikes. And so with an incredible effort that consumed an unimaginable part of the uh, GPD of the Netherlands, they built a kind of system of new dikes with new sluices, with new devices to let water in, uh, water out. And I can remember that, you know, when that was finished somewhere in the kind of 60s, early 70s, the entire population went to see it because it was a miracle. And that is maybe also the kind of uh, definition of beauty that I was hinting at. There was a miracle because there was something never seen before. There is definitely in the kind of near future and even in the current moment, uh, similar uh, entities that are emerging. There are unbelievable uh, installations for producing food. 
that are, uh, for instance, no longer kind of based on daylight. Conditions that are, you know, hybrids of biological and highly artificial, both experimental, but also trying to take uh, account of, you know, all the issues of global warming, et cetera, et cetera. So I think if you look beyond uh, developers' architecture, and even if you look beyond the current uh, inventory or vocabulary of our culture, i.e. museums, theaters, et cetera, there are emerging maybe kind of promising future uh, entities that could create the same acceleration about uh, something new. Rem, thanks so much for sharing with us your past, present and future. Okay. Okay. Thank you for the interview. It's, it's, as usual, it's always so nice to talk to you, Jonathan. <laughs>